Welcome to the Hardware Asylum Podcast. This episode, we talk about PCI Express 4.0 and its increased power limits, the corrosion risks of water cooling, and the Hardware Asylum Podcast on YouTube. I'm your host, Dennis Garcia, and with me today, I have Darren McCain. Darren, this last month, Intel had their annual developers conference down in San Francisco. Fun. And one of the items that came out from that conference was PCI Express 4.0. Oh, nice. And now, as you know, from, you know, Sandy Bridge on, PCI Express was built into the CPU. So we have a specified amount of lanes coming off the CPU that gives you faster bandwidth for video cards to the, directly to the CPU and also paved the way to doing things like M.2 uh, PCI Express SSDs and stuff like that. Absolutely. So the good news is that it's built into the processor, but the bad news means that if you want to upgrade now, it's not just the motherboard. Right. It's not just the motherboard. You have to consider how many lanes you have available. So that's the the difference between a 1150X processor and a 2011 processor because we have a separate amount of lanes in each CPU. Well, I have to say it's uh, it's about time that we started improving the onboard performance of our peripherals. And it's nice to see the change in direction where we're bringing things back to the processor like it was back in the day. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the items was PCI Express 4.0, as I mentioned. And of course, that promises higher bandwidth, much like PCI Express 2.0 versus 3.0. Right. Now we got 4.0, kind of doubles or quadruples the bandwidth or something like that. Some insane amount of, of speed. Well, that's a lot of bandwidth, even at double. Obviously, you can still split those down using a PLX chip. However, there's always been a limitation of the amount of power that can be delivered over the PCI Express interface. So how is the PCI Express 4.0 going to handle that? They have increased the specification from like 35 watts, which is what it is right now, up to about 300 to 500. Holy cow. Now, if I remember correctly, 3.0 had a theoretical limit that was more like 75 watts. I just haven't seen anything ever use it. Well, no, that's because it's up to the motherboard manufacturers to allow that power to come across. And we got to think about where does that power come from? Well, it's got to come from the power supply. Well, obviously the power <laughs> supply. But you're, you're talking about running it through the motherboard. And did you just say 500 watts? Because that is a lot of power to run through a motherboard. I mean, how many layers are we going to have to put in that? And, and how much? Yeah. Okay. I see where you're going with this. <laughs> that's quite a lot. Well, if you think about it, a GTX 1080... Uh, they recommend a 500-watt power supply just to run that GPU. The TDP on it is less than 200 watts, so that's that card's going to require about 200 watts of power, you know, if you count heat production, to run it. Now, if you can grab that from the motherboard, you have to allow that motherboard to have that kind of power coming across. But that's not going to come from that 24-pin power connector, and it's not going to come from that 8-pin power connector that goes directly to the CPU. Yeah, there's just not enough power there. And the way that they've solved it now is obviously with the PCI Express power, those six to eight pins that plug directly into the video card. You know, in theory, if you take those plugs and then put them onto the motherboard, then you can get that power directly across and then to the card. Well, that would certainly make it somewhat backwards compatible with the power supplies that are out there. But I have to say, uh, I remember there was a time when the plug that went to the motherboard itself was much smaller also. And then they started making them larger and adding that optional what, four-pin add-on. So 
There's another opportunity also to bring that power over on the uh, the ATX power plug, you know, the big motherboard plug that has been gradually growing over the years. I mean, they added the two extra pins or four extra pins in the last run. Yeah, it started as a 20-pin connector, and that was back in, what, Pentium 3 days. And then they add the extra four to accommodate, you know, more chips and stuff like that. So maybe they turn the four into an eight or something else. Stop making those stupid things optional. <laughs> well, that would be awesome if they could stop making them optional. But I started to think about it. It's like, what happens if you want to run three vi- three graphics cards and each one requires 500 watts power? You're going to need at least two of those PCI Express connectors for every video card. So now your 24-pin becomes a, what, 44-pin? Yeah, that's just crazy to think about. I mean, anything could happen. We could run a power plug to the frickin' bridge for, you know, power or something. Who knows? Yeah, well, ultimately, the way that I started thinking about it, it's like you have to start beefing up the motherboard to handle that extra power going across the, the board itself. And you'll have to separate those traces from data traces. And that's where I see the, honestly, the biggest change in the build and the expense of the motherboard. That's a lot of power to run across those traces. Yeah, that's a lot of power. And, you know, if you think about it, it's like right now we have power going directly into the video card. Well, if you just relocate those to the PCI Express connector at the bottom and you have this 90 degree sort of power connector coming in, all you are doing is moving it down. You're not removing it from the card at all. Now, what about backwards compatibility? Well, backwards compatibility, that's supposed to be in the specification. So you can plug in a PCI Express 1.0 card into these slots. Ideally, you can't get that power through the connector, so you'll still have to connect to the power plug traditionally. Right, so the video card still has to support drawing the power directly from the motherboard. It will be a incremental increase, I guess. So you have current video cards like a GTX 1080. You can't plug that into PCI Express 4.0 and expect the to draw the power from the connector. It'll still need to be plugged in. That's something built in from NVIDIA so you don't blow up your stuff. But if you had a PCI Express 4.0 graphics card, it may not have those plugs anymore. It may have to be on a supporting motherboard with the supporting power options. Well, that'll certainly clean up the builds, especially in windowed builds. So uh, what do we have for specs? Do we know anything other than the theoretical power supply? Well, we have some speed options here. So with PCI Express 4.0, it's supposed to be 1.9 gigabits per second at 1x. Wow, nice. And at 16x, that's supposed to be 31.5 gigabits a second. Yeah, so nearly double what we've been seeing on 3.0. Yeah, so at 3.0, it's 15 gigabits a second. At 1.0, it was 4. Oh, those were the days. And 8.0, of course, where we see the multiple cards dropping into, are, uh, yeah, also dramatically increased, almost double at every step, it looks like. Another side benefit for this is we have considerably more bandwidth available. So I mentioned before how you could have a PLX chip in there to split the lanes. So now we could have an 11.5x CPU with 16 lanes of PCI Express bandwidth split into, what, 64? And imagine how many um, NVMe drives you can have hooked into that. Oh, that would be sweet. A little stack of RAID NVMe drives. Yeah, storage would not be a problem anymore. Yeah, and that'll bring the price down too, you'd think, because you get greater adaptation. Mm-hmm. Although that's a lot of... Um, chunks to put onto a motherboard, but you know, if you had an add-on card that had the PLX chip on it, 
he gets power from the PCI Express slot, and then he just have stacks and stacks and stacks of these cheap drives on there. Yeah, stick them in there like dominoes. That'd be awesome. That would be awesome, and it would keep them cool. Not that they get hot anyway. So PCI Express 4.0, we can look for that sometime. Uh, well, the specification is supposed to be finalized sometime in 2017. I'm going to guess it'll probably take about a year, year and a half for products to start rolling out, and then probably three more years before it gets adopted by enthusiasts that find <laughs> it beneficial. Well, the good news is plenty of time to budget and plenty of time to drool. Longtime listeners will know that we finished up our Core V51 modding project, which started out with a custom-painted Core V51 and ended with the installation of a Thermaltake Hardline water cooling kit. It's a beautiful orange project that we're very proud of. And I wanted to share it with some like-minded individuals, so I posted it to Reddit. (laughs) That can be an interesting experience. Yeah, so I posted it in the R water cooling subreddit, and I'll link to that in the show notes. But I was surprised at getting some responses from them. Oh, how so? Well, we have basically seven upvotes, which is not really, you know, earth shattering or breaking. And that was 100%. So there was no downvotes at all. Well, that's something good. But we also have nine comments. And the first comment is aluminum rads. And they're referring to the Thermaltake radiators, right? Yeah, I believe so. Uh, the second one is the Thermaltake Shit Rads, Rip Your Blocks, and that's from Cosmo, it looks like. Uh, next one, if only they would make copper rads, Rip Your Blocks, I guess, which I guess that's a problem, right? Okay. The last one, I think this looks pretty good. You don't see orange much. I will say that the Thermaltake 120 millimeter rad and, oh wait, no. So he had one, it looks like, and after a week it started chipping away. You might be okay, though, if you stick to their coolant. Okay. I like Start chipping away. And then, of course, I chimed in and talked about how the project and painting and all this stuff and how it wasn't my case and stuff like that. Basically, I said, um, I'm 100% not worried. One, not my system. It's Obviously, it's Darren's. Oh, thank you. It's just a project for the website. Ended up doing all the work myself, paint and loop and stuff. Second one, I would assume that Thermaltake wouldn't warranty their gear if they felt there would be a problem even when we still have to consider the lifetime of the loop, which means that, you know, the loop is going to last a certain amount of time and then you're going to upgrade out of it. Well, yeah, eventually, if nothing else, you have to replace the seals. I mean, that's just life. Yeah. Uh, next comment down below is saying, tell them to swap out the aluminum radiators before they start to cause corrosion. Okay. And then another person comes in because this is actually Cosmo again. He's saying there should be no reason to be replacing radiators unless they are aluminum junk, especially when proper copper ones don't cost as much for anything more. Well, that's almost like a catch-22 there. So you don't have to replace them unless they're junk, but proper copper ones don't cost much more or anything more. And I would disagree. Copper ones are quite a bit more expensive in my experience. If you go and look at the prices, Thermaltake is actually asking a lot for their aluminum radiators, which eh, I'm not really bought to why but that's just the way it is let's see there's a guy saying plus one uh using some truly fucking ancient swifty rads here 2004 ish blah 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 saying that they're all chipped but they're still working great and then the last guy said that pump res is ugly yeah, of course beauty's in the eye of the beholder especially when we went with the larger size pump so i'm sympathetic with that and we've talked already a little bit about if we had done it in a separate process that we probably would have used a different pump res 
that were separate. One, because it gives us some cool options for, you know, some custom reservoirs. And two, because it gives us a little more flexibility on the location there. So I'm going to discount that comment because I can definitely see where he's coming from there. But what I'm a little more curious about is these corrosion comments. And I'm inclined to agree with some of the comments that obviously there are copper reses and there are aluminum reses, and they have their strengths and weaknesses, primarily cost. But I wasn't aware that there was a major corrosion issue in water cooling. Well, that's because there is and there isn't. So, okay. So we have to kind of qualify some of these comments with the R water cooling subreddit being supported by EK Waterblocks. Oh, yay. No the official master... Uh, manufacturer support and discussion threads by EK Web. Well, and we should point out that we did use some really beautiful EK water blocks on our video cards, both with the 970 G1 Gaming and with the 1070 Gamer X. Mm-hmm. And they are amazing looking blocks. You have some plastic on the outside and nickel plate on the inside. Very gorgeous. So I started looking into this, and you know, I know what kind of corrosion they're talking about. It's uh, galvanic or galvanic corrosion, and it's basically the corrosion of dissimilar metals. Okay, now I think that that sounds a little familiar, even if I couldn't have told you what it was called. But tell me a little more about that. So say, for instance, you have an aluminum frame that's sitting next to the ocean, and you use steel rivets to hold it together. Now, if you know anything about stuff on the coast, for instance, metal buildings tend to rust. Yes, they do. Okay, now rust is inherent to an oxidation process of iron. And that's why it turns orange. They call that rust. Well, with galvanic corrosion, what happens is it's a battery effect. So you have an anode and a cathode, and basically it's moving ions from one metal to the other metal. And eventually it will cause there to be holes. And in the case of our aluminum frame with iron rivets, the rivets will eventually fall out of the metal and the entire structure will fall, fall down. Well, that doesn't sound like a good thing. No. And when I was designing my own water blocks way back in the day, there was a lot of discussions about what metals to use. A lot of people wanted to use like aluminum to build their water block design and use an aluminum bottom and then a plastic top. Or if they wanted to be really adventurous, they use a copper bottom and then match it with an aluminum top because aluminum is a bit cheaper, easier to manufacture. Uh, It looked pretty nice. But everybody would say, no, don't do that because you're going to have corrosion between the two. And those are two dissimilar metals that are touching each other. All right. Once you run an electrolyte between the two, you complete the electrical connection. And then it will start moving electrons from the aluminum to the copper. So that would mean that you need some sort of conductive surface or conductive liquid between the two different types of metal. Yeah, which water can do. Okay. The way that it's tested, they test it with salt water, you know, basically ocean water. But distilled water, regardless of how pure you make it, tends to absorb things. And we mentioned this in a previous podcast, how running water through like a radiator without flushing it will pick up rosin and stuff like that during the manufacturing process. That creates ions in the water that will eventually conduct electricity. So when you have this electrolyte going across the two metals, you'll have these ions moving. The trick is they have to have an electrical connection between the two. So they either have to be touching each other or have a conducted liquid between the two. Okay. In our process, we've got quite a bit of tubing between those two components if we're talking about the reservoir and the water block. Yeah. Now we have to look at all the metals in our particular loop. We start looking at our loop. We have 
a nickel-plated copper, and that's the EK water block. Uh, the nickel will react as well. We have an aluminum radiator, and we also have the copper base on the um, CPU block. The top of it is made out of poly or palm or something like that. Okay, so three different metals that can interact. Mm -hmm. Three different metals can interact. And if we look at our loop, we have the res, and then the water goes out of the res into the video card, video card to the CPU, and then we have a long run that goes from the CPU to the radiator, radiator back into the res. So we have to consider the distance between the copper and the aluminum pieces over the liquid. That's our longest runs. And the trick is with this galvanic corrosion is that distance matters. So for instance, if we go to the ocean, we drop a piece of aluminum in, in the water and then drop a piece of copper like four meters away, chances of those two pieces corroding, slim to none. Oh, I got you because the electrical current has to be able to cross between the two. Yeah. And we also have voltage drop over that distance. So when they're touching each other, you have a higher voltage capacity between the two. Once they get separated further apart, you lose that voltage. So you take that same scenario and you move them closer together so maybe they're an inch apart and then they'll start corroding. We use that same scenario with your particular loop. And the only way that there would be an electrical connection between the two is via the coolant, which we're using thermal take coolant for this, or through the metal on the chassis. So we have the metal connection of our radiator touching the chassis. That is grounded to the motherboard. And then we also have these, uh, basically all the pins that connect our CPU. Half of those are grounded. And then we have our CPU contacting our block. There's a lot of resistance between those two. So chances of an electrical connection from the chassis itself, it's there, but it's very, very slim. Well, and even at that point, we're talking about a great deal of time would be required also. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they're further apart. Now, if they were uh, right next to each other, then that would be a problem. The difference here is that we're using the thermal take coolant. And I started researching the issues, for instance, of why people are saying, hey, well, what's happening with my EK water block? Why is it being uh, corroded away? And EK, I, I'm assuming... They were trying to cover up for bad plating on their early blocks and then claiming that it was because somebody had some aluminum or silver or something else in their loop that was causing the ions to leave the nickel to go to this other metal, which doesn't really make much sense because it goes the other way. Like in our aluminum copper situation, the aluminum would corrode, not the CPU block. And the same with our, um, our nickel-plated video card block, the aluminum is going to go to the nickel. It's not going to go the other way around. So this all sounds kind of like a weird homeopathic computing, actually. Yeah, it's kind of like a lot of misinformation, and then people believe the masses. So it could happen. You could have your block get wasted away by your aluminum, but even in this case, it seems like it would be the opposite because of how we set up the block with the reservoir coming after the CPU. Yeah, well, it's going to be the wasting part would be the radiator. So we'll have a hole in the radiator eventually if we had a corrosion issue. And I'm, not, I'm going to say that we probably won't. One, because we're using the thermal take coolant. Now, if we switch it out and use plain distilled water with maybe like a dye, we probably increase our chances. But the fact that we have the two pieces separated by such a distance, that's probably slim to none. 
Okay, so if I'm understanding the science here, what we need to do is make sure that two dissimilar metals are not in close contact. Yep. And then we reduce the risk by using a non-conductive fluid, mm -hmm. which in this case is a, a, I guess, a boutique-built liquid that's designed to keep that from happening. Right. Yeah, and that would be our thermal take coolant. The thing is, you've looked under the hood of your car. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure that the radiator in your car is aluminum. Uh, yeah, seems likely. I know the, the radiator in my S10 is aluminum. The block itself is iron. I have uh, brass plugs in the side. Yeah. I mean, my engine is a cornucopia of different metals and a liquid going over everything. Yes, that's a high degree of water with a small amount of radiator fluid of some sort in it. Right. And the one thing that the auto, man auto manufacturers stress in your manuals is that you don't put water in your radiator. You put antifreeze in your radiator. And that antifreeze has like some anti-corrosive sort of stuff. But really what it is, is it's displacing the water with another liquid so that that would absorb and, and transmit heat, but also keep the metals from corroding. That stops that electrical connection. So could you get corrosion in your car? Well, it's not very likely, at least not for years and years. Yeah, well, and it happens. I mean, I've had uh, trucks that have, um, you know, the coolant has been completely orange and it has to be flushed like four or five times to get all the, the rust from the block out of there because that's where the, that happens. But that was from filling it with like tap water or something like that. Oh, yuck. If you use just regular coolant, that's not going to be the case. Now, that same thing applies to a water cooling loop in your PC. You can have dissimilar metals if you use a proper coolant. Um, a lot of these people that are, are saying, hey, you know, rip your blocks or, you know, um, get that aluminum out of there. It's because they're using distilled water and that distilled water as i mentioned before kind of has an issue so the solution so to speak is to not use aluminum use a copper radiator or use a brass radiator and in a way those copper and brass you know they're heavier they may not cool as well as aluminum that's debatable uh, and then there's cost you know it might be cheaper it might be more expensive in the case of EK, they sell these copper radiators to say, hey, use these. They're trying to sell them, obviously. So, well, yeah, and they're, of course, pushing the matched metal because that's the safest. Well, it doesn't mean it's the only solution. I think I'm seeing that. So ultimately, I am, um, I hate to use you as a guinea pig, okay. but I would say we run your system for a good six months and then let's change the fluid. And when we change the fluid, let's pull everything apart. Let's look in the, in the radiator, see if there's anything there. Let's look in the fluid, filter it out, see if there's anything there. Look at the blocks, see if they've discolored any. And I'm willing to bet that it's going to look the same as it did when I took the pictures for the article. Well, definitely worth a look, but I think I agree with you. If it were that much of a risk, I don't think you'd see a major manufacturer selling an aluminum block. Or an aluminum radiator. Or anything, really, aluminum, because copper is so popular in the medium, especially from enthusiasts. Time will tell. In an attempt to expand our listenership, I've started encoding some of our past podcast episodes and uploading them to YouTube. Oh, that's good news. They say YouTube is the medium of the future, or at least today. At least today, yes. And unfortunately, uh, with a podcast, there's an inherent lack of moving pictures. So I've encoded them with our 
uh, Hardware Asylum logo with the flame guy with the headphones on there. And obviously the, the audio is the same. You can get the same audio experience by going to hardwareasylum.com and getting the, the MP3. But with YouTube, it has uh, kind of expanded not only the SEO aspect of Hardware Asylum, but also opened it up to a new market of people that generally don't go anywhere but YouTube. Well, as your primary consumers, and it does give us the opportunity to explore other uses for that channel in the future. So I've run into a couple of not necessarily gotchas, but some annoyances of the whole process. And I wanted to kind of share that along with uh, saying, hey, go out to the YouTube channel, uh, like, like, what is it? Like, comment, subscribe. Is that what I'm supposed to say? Yeah. The subscribe button is located somewhere around here. Yes. And I believe it's red, unless you are subscribed and then yay. So as part of the encoding process, I've taken to downloading FFmpeg. Have you ever heard of that program? I can't say I have. Well, it's an open source media encoder. So a lot of the, you know, the rippers that you can download will come with FFmpeg and it will allow you to take video from a DVD and then make it into an AVI or an MPEG or something like that. It also handles a lot of the compression algorithms and makes the, the video really small and still fairly high quality. Sounds like a handy little program. And it's command line driven, so I can script it. Nice. So what I did was I took all of the old past MP3 files and dropped them into a folder. I also put our logo into that same folder and ran a little script. And I kid you not, it took 16 hours to encode all of our MP3s. And I just had this running on a little dev server in the background. But yeah, it took all day to encode these videos. Now, how far back do we go? We went all the way back to when Hardware Asylum became, well, Ninja Lane became Hardware Asylum. So that's about three years worth. Now, that's a lot. That's quite a lot. That's, uh, what, 60 some odd episodes, something like that. Okay, so that took how long again? It took about 12 to 16 hours, something like that. Ouch. Okay, so then what's next? Well, what's next is now I have to upload the video to YouTube. Uh, unfortunately, instead of like the MP3 file, which was like 16 megs, 20 megs at most, it now is 250 megs. Wow. Okay. So that's a bandwidth eater. Yeah. Bandwidth eater. Uh, with YouTube though, it takes about a half hour to upload, uh, with my crappy DSL connection. And then when it's up there, then I, you know, you set your, your titles, your descriptions, you put your tags in there. Uh, once it's finished, YouTube goes and re-encodes it into a streaming format, and it also loses a little bit of quality when that happens. So it's imperative that you upload a high-quality video so that it can go and decide what to, to pull down off of that. And then at that point, you can uh, launch monetization. Uh, if it goes through and finds a lack of copyrighted material uh, for our podcast, it's mostly voice, so that's not an issue except for our outro music. Oh, no. So for a while, those of you that haven't been around can go back and listen. Um, we used to challenge ourselves with coming up with interesting new music for our outro. Our intro music, of course, is from Little People, and we have requested and received permission to use it. But it was fun to find open source music or fair use music out there that was interesting and different. But of course, that took a lot of time and effort. So eventually, we decided that we liked Little People on both ends, and that's where we are today. Unfortunately, some of those older artists that were allowing you to use their music would uh, 
you know, if you use it on YouTube, you get a little copyright strike and that removes monetization, which kind of brings up a whole, you know, issue of like, well, how do you make money on YouTube if they don't allow you to run ads? But, you know, that's a discussion for another time. <laughs> of course. Yeah. A lot of people are challenged by that and working through it. But once the video's up there, and then I kind of create a playlist so you can go and view all of the past episodes, it kind of opens up a new market for YouTube for people to listen to the podcast and make suggestions. It also uh, increases our search engine exposure. So when you do a search for a hardware asylum podcast or a hardware asylum water cooling, a relevant video will come up in your search results as well. Very nice. So the plan going forward is that we will release our podcast, our main show, and our extras on hardwareasylum.com. So people that have subscribed will still be able to get those. And then a month afterwards, I'll upload that past episode to YouTube. Well, folks, that just sounds like we're increasing the ways that you can interact with us here. So we're hoping you take advantage of that. Check us out on hardwareasylum.com. Or if YouTube is your medium of choice, you'll be able to check us out there as well. For more information on the topics discussed in this podcast, please consult our show notes on hardwareasylum.com. Stay up to date on the latest at Hardware Asylum by subscribing to our RSS. Follow us on Google or like us on Facebook. This has been an Engineering Production, copyright 2016. Thanks for listening.